yes, welcome to another episode of the Circuit of Time 80s Movie Review Podcast. I am JD and I'm joined by my trusted sidekick, Jeff Dog. Jeff Dog, I hope you're doing well in this uh, week of sun and barbecues. Yep, record temperatures across the country, JD, in the 30s, which uh, probably for some of our listeners is quite low as far as summer goes, but for us it's extremely high. Yeah, we've got we're in a, a, a mini heat wave at the moment, and uh, uh, from what I've heard, the next few days there's going to be plenty of rain. So I'm praying for that. I'm doing a little dance just to just to bring that rain a little bit sooner because it's not nice at all. Yeah, it's not easy when you're in an office block or public transport. It, it's beer weather, isn't it? We want to be out, and especially because restrictions have been lifted. Yep, we are no longer muzzled. We are mask free. <laughs> you're muzzled when you go home. <laughs> but any, but look, moving on. It, it's time for uh, another deep dive into the wonderful world of the eighties, and with a film you may recognise from the following sound. And if you didn't get it from that, Jeff Dog, what is the film we'll be discussing? Honey, I shrunk the kids. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, Jeff Dog, tell us a few things we probably ought to know about Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Some brief facts. Well, it's a 1989 film, the tail end of the 80s, directed by Joe Johnston. With a screenplay by two guys called Ed Nahart and Tom Shulman. With a budget of $18 million, it increased its outlay to $222 million. So it was definitely a case of Honey Eye blew up the profits. Oh, nice. Very nice. And of course, it starred the missing but still very much alive Rick Moranis. Yeah, he's due to make a comeback, however, with something which I'm sure we will talk about in our movie legacy section. That's right. I don't. I don't think he's been seen since uh, the Flintstones movie. Well, to be honest, if I was in that movie, I wouldn't want to be seen either. <laughs> <laughs> so, what is Honey I Shrunk the Kids all about? Movie synopsis. Well, when the neighbouring kids sneak into inventor Wayne Zelinsky, that's Rick Moranis. Wayne Zelinsky. Zelin- <laughs> I'm gonna have, trouble, <laughs> gonna have problems with this this episode, JD. <laughs> Imagine the, the way I think of it is imagine there's no S, it just begins with a Z. Zelinsky. Yeah, you're having that? I'm having that, JD, but I'm not necessarily having the pronunciation of, of the letter Z, which you say Z in this country, not Z. <laughs> I'm thinking of the name. Okay. Wayne's lab. <laughs> and the neighbor goes in there to retrieve his baseball uh, and he discovers the experimental shrink ray. Uh, which, of course, has now been turned on because of said baseball, which miniaturizes all of the children, both the neighbor's children and the Zelinskys. And when Wayne returns home, he smashes up his device because he thinks it doesn't work. He throws out all of the little bits, the little transistors, transistors and whatnot, in the uh, the garbage at the back of the garden. But it turns out that he's also thrown away the kids with it. So now the children have to make their way back through the adventure playground that is the backyard. That's great. Well covered. And, and I noticed you called it the shrink ray gun, which is interesting because I don't know if that was ever ever said aloud in the film. Maybe, maybe it was and I missed it. 
I think the word shrinks used, but not necessarily as to describe the machine in that way. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. Uh, do you have one at home? I, I only asked because I can remember that one time in school when we went swimming. And what's that? <laughs> no, oh, oh, you don't want me to shit? Okay, we'll move on. Let's get right into the Let's get right into the review. <laughs> I presume you're talking about the time that I'd brought a, a face cloth as opposed to a towel. Could have been that. Could have been that. <laughs> <laughs> but let's jump right in. And, and we, we've done this now for a few episodes, haven't we, where, you know, some of these films uh, have really caught us, not so much off guard, but they've kind of caught our attention straight away with the intro. And, and here's another example, uh, an, an animated intro. And, and it, it's such a unique and, and clever introduction because... It almost kind of, um, well, number one, it kind of gives us a nice way of exhibiting the names of the cast and the crew, but also it kind of gives us a good idea as to what this film's going to be about in its entirety. We've got these highlights of what's going to come and, you know, all these little hints as to what might happen. And certainly one of the most interesting and exciting things about this film is the interaction between the characters and their environments. And you can see that in the animated introduction. There's a, someone getting chased by a, a hoover and things like that, and it just gives a little hint as to what's to come. And the sense of feeling I got from that part of the film was, this is a film made by Disney, so our expectations are it's going to be a an animated film, mostly. Uh, but it, 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 this isn't an animated film, of course, only in part at the start there. Um, it, is actually, it actually turned out to be Disney's highest grossing live-action film for a very long time. I think it was knocked off its perch many years later. I'm not sure with what. But yeah, anyway, we're talking more about the intro. So what do you think? Well, yeah, as I say, I think it was great. And um, I think, you know, the way, as I say, uh, exhibited some of the names. I think at one point someone uses a fly squatter um, when they, they lift the fly squatter up, the squashed guts reveal the names of like the executive producer. So all that kind of stuff was great. And, you know, it was nice and eye-catching. Um and then, of course, we are introduced, I think, to the first time we're introduced to any of our characters. It's uh, the kids, Amy and Nick Selinsky. Um, and, of course, the pet dog, uh, Quark, who, who's got a bit of a good role in this film, really. He pops up at a few key moments, which w w we can talk about. And, and of course, Amy seems more of the, the social girl, the, the socialite, uh, whilst Nick seems uh, a bit more preoccupied with, with gadgets uh, and science. Um, and in fact, speaking of gadgets, the kitchen is almost full of them. I mean, it's maybe not to the level that, you know, uh, the Pelsters were in Gremlins 2, the bathroom buddy and all that. <laughs> um, but this kitchen's also full of gadgets. And again, it's, it's more nods as to what this family's like and uh, you know, quirky in, in some respect. Oh, quirky. <laughs> yep, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, I've noticed this in 80s films, a lot of what you'd call Rube Goldberg devices. So you have something like a contraption that's really complicated and goes through the motions before it actually does something. For example, like the dog, the automatic dog food dispenser at the start of Back to the Future. Uh, Data in the Goonies has lots and lots of little gadgets and things like that, doesn't he? Um, also in, as you mentioned, Gremlins, Bathroom Buddy and all these kinds of things. But also the same in this film too. The, the inventions that Zelinsky comes up with seem to fulfill a really functional purpose but at the same time, as he's inventing something that will feed the dog automatically or let the dog feed itself with the push of a button, should I say, his day job involves coming up with shrink rays that can, 
that are going to completely revol- revolutionize the world. So maybe his talents are wasted a little bit. It's interesting <laughs> what you said there about um, you picked up on uh, Amy and being the, the, the girl, the, the classic 80s girl. You know, she's got the phone and she's talking about the mall and the boys she fancies and all that. And then you just turn around and see poor, poor, poor Nick. In his lab coat. Little geek in his lab coat with his, with his miniaturized version of the screen. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's not long after we're, of course, introduced to, um, I don't know if you'd call him the star of the movie because it's kind of really shared amongst this cast. But the dad, of course, is uh, Rick Moranis who plays the character Wayne. Um, and he's working on what what looks or could almost be mistaken for a weapon. Uh, I think, obviously, we kind of get the idea that it's a shrink gun from the title and, of course, the intro. But looking at it from just a purely design point of view, this guy's got a super high-powered laser in his attic. I mean, is it even legal? <laughs> well, it's probably just a couple of years after the invention of uh, CDs. So people guess would have had uh, lasers in their own homes, but probably nothing to the degree that, that that this thing does. Is it legal? Probably not. But you know, he's uh he seems to be one of these people who can put something together out of nothing. I'd just love to know where he's getting all the money from to do all this kind of stuff. <laughs> and of course, the first test of this machine is seen pretty early on. It's the apple, um, and and I think this is the point when we do have confirmation that it's a shrink gun because I think Wayne looks into the monitor, doesn't he? And he wills it to work by, by saying, shrink, come on, shrink. Uh, so we know it's a shrink machine, but ultimately the, the test doesn't prove successful and the apple, you know, splats. Yeah, we see the apple in the in the late 80s computer generated uh, on the screen and then the, the apple does explode. And I think uh, he then turns around to the dog and says words to the effect of, uh, we'll put it this way: if we if we haven't invented the shrink gun, then we've invented the what, is it something something about apple puree or the most unusual way of making applesauce. <laughs> 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 uh, not long after, we are introduced to the next door neighbours, uh, Russ and May, uh, Russ and May Thompson, and their kids, Russ Junior and Ron. Um, and Russ is that again; he's a bit of a, a cliched American dad. He really wants his kids to get ready for the, the fishing trip and he's got all the, the, he's got his cap on, he's ready to go. But he's a he's a bit hard on the kids, isn't he? Well, you know, this was this is one of those films that I used to watch again and again and again for the adventure, childhood, associated with the child characters. I haven't seen it in a while until quite recently. I really appreciated this time around some of the underlying themes here. So one I didn't quite mention before was the relationship between the parents, the Zelinskis, which we can talk about. And that's first hinted at in that very first scene between Amy and Nick. But also the, the neighbour character, there's something, you know, he's he's played in a very clever way by Matt Thriller, who plays him. He could have been daft and he could have been uh, one-dimensional, but he's not. It seems as though this man had something about him years ago and he's got older and now he's settled down so he had a lot of promise and now he's just the suburban dad so in a way he's trying to live his life or the opportunities that he didn't have through his children and he's putting that pressure on them it's quite deep for a, a, a you know a, a side character in a in a comedy 
But I really noticed that his one son, Ron, wants to play basketball. Basketball, he's into baseball. Baseball with him. And he says, oh, no, I can't. Uh, getting ready for the trip. And his other lad, he's trying to big him up to get into weights or on the team or all that kind of stuff. And he doesn't want to disappoint his dad. So he's got a lad there who wants to interact with him, but he's not interested in him. And he's got a lad who doesn't want to do the things that he, he wants him to do. So all this pressure that he's putting upon them isn't doing anything for anyone. And I think the relationship between the characters there with their father is uh, is quite, as you say, comes back to quite harsh. It, it, I'm glad you said it because I must have watched this film five, ten times as a kid. And I think, obviously, when you watch a film through a child's eyes, you're only looking for, you know, the effects, the fun and all that kind of stuff. I'm with you. I could not believe that I had missed all this. Uh, and, and straight away, it was the issue of fathers. In, in a weird way, the fathers were the total opposite. In fact, the families were. One father wanted to really engage with his kids, which was the, the Thompson father. Rick Moranis didn't have any time for them. He just wanted to focus on his machine. Uh, one family had a dog, the other one had a cat. The eldest kid of the Thompsons was a confident socialite. The eldest kid in the other family was a shy boy. And then the two youngest kids, one was into sports, the other one was into science. They were the complete polar opposites. But I did pick up on this strange dynamic between the parents and the kids. Really interesting. I'm glad you picked that up. No, and I'm um, also glad that you mentioned the opposites because I had not noticed that as much as you had there, and it makes perfect sense now. It, it does. Um, not long after, Wayne uh, heads to a, a conference to showcase the uh, shrinking gun. Uh, and, 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 of course, it doesn't go well, and it kind of it, it gives us a bit of... You kind of get the feeling that this has been the story of his life. He's a failed scientist, isn't he? Yeah, he, he, he says something during this conference about Einstein or... Even Einstein's theory of relativity was a theory, and they all laugh at him and say, "Oh, Mr. Zelensky, you're not Einstein," you know, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then they walk out, don't they? These stuffy, uh, cliche-type scientists, you know, older guys. You know, they may as well just have wild duck brown here. They walk off on him, despite everything that he's got in theory. At least he's got somebody with him who says, pats him on the back, and says, "You know." it's there in theory you just need proof and it might take time to get that proof but but you will get it but it does seem like he's a workaholic and a real try hard and i think in a way what the film's trying to do is it's trying to say this guy is like a thomas edison uh a much more working class kind of um scientist not you know from all the right family and all that kind of stuff he's someone who's got the talent and he's worked his way up and he applies himself in unique and quite different ways to solve problems. And of course, some of the great people involved in science and technology of an engineer and have, have done that. You know, they've thought outside the box. They, for them, there is no box. They, they think so so differently to everybody else. But coming back to these themes that we did, you, you meant, you, I think you're a bit harsh on yourself when you said, you know, I can't believe I didn't notice it. Well, you wouldn't because you were a child and you don't have the emotional maturity that you do now as an older man. So one thing, another thing that I've uh, not picked up on until until recent viewing was the relationship, which I mentioned, between the Zelinskis 
In the very first scene, when Amy's on the phone, she says that mom stayed in grandma's. And there's a real downer about it. And Nick says, when's mom coming back? And Amy's got this real look on her face, like a real sad look. Like, And she says something like, you know, well, she's coming back soon. But those kids know that their parents' relationship's in danger. And mum isn't staying with dad regularly, um, which is something that I, I'd noticed as a child, that the mum was kind of away at one point. But I'd not thought about it again because I didn't have the emotional maturity to understand that Mr. Zelensky Wayne is a workaholic and everything he's doing is taken away from his family, which would damage yeah. the relationship. Yeah, no, as I say, it was not just the relationship issues between the kids, but again, like you just said, with his wife, it was I was oblivious to it. So whilst the, um, well, in fact, whilst Wayne's at the conference, uh, the Zelensky kids are cleaning the home. Um, and I think the next door neighbours are kind of doing a bit of moving. I think they're, they're helping the dad load the, the car, aren't they, ready for the fishing trip? And it's at this point where we see Russ Jr. Uh, looking through the window at the next door neighbours and he catches Amy dancing, doesn't he? And he, he's got these lustful eyes and this is a, a, a first clue, if you like, that, that there's something, he, he's got a bit of a crush on her, hasn't he? Yeah, he's got a, she is the girl next door, isn't she? But as you said, he's uh, he's quite geeky, even though he's quite, he's quite a handsome chap, so you know, I'm sure he'd be popular in school, but he's playing the sort of shy, doesn't really want to be involved in the sports type of thing. Almost like an Emilio Estevez in uh, the Breakfast Club, kind of. <laughs> you know, I only, I only want to do it because uh, my dad wants me to. <laughs> uh, do you know what? I think you've got, you've nailed it. He is that kind of kid. You know, he, although he's kind of, I think he stands up to his dad, doesn't he, at one point, and he says, I don't want to do that. He's, he's quite confident in the way he asserts that he doesn't want to do what his dad wants him to do. Um, and of course, the other kid, Ronald, he's just, a bit like his dad, he's into the, maybe not the fishing, but he's into the sports, uh, in particular baseball. Um, and of course, he's playing baseball in his in his backyard and he hits a ball, which unfortunately smashes the Zelinsky attic window. And of course, wakes up the shrinking, the, or the shrink ray machine, the shrink ray gun. Um, it's, it's one of those, isn't it, when the ball hits something and then all the LEDs blink and sparks fly. Um and he's activated the machine, uh, which is the catalyst for, for the chaos that ensues. So what is it about the ball then that makes the machine work? Because I couldn't figure that out even at the end of the film. My understanding was that as the ball lands on the part of it lands on the part of the machine where the laser would go through it and it almost weakens it, it almost acts as like a bit of a resistor. Ah. Because I think it's at one point towards the end of the film, I think Wayne acknowledges. It was too too powerful. Um, that was my reading of it anyway. Okay. Um, but of course, Nick and Ronald go to the attic to retrieve the ball, only for the shrink ray gun to uh, have them shrunken, followed not too long after by uh, Amy and Russ. Of course, but before they actually go up to the attic, um, they have that interaction with the Zelinsky kids. And you can tell that they just don't get along. Obviously, the the, the older lad, he's the one who ends up with the, the, the older girl. Uh, he's very shy in the conversation. But the younger lad, I think the first thing he says to Nick is uh, nerd face or <laughs> space boy or something. 
<laughs> yeah, he's he's, a, he's an obnoxious kid, but he, he's really funny. I mean, I think he blames the house for being too close. Why <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> you know, I didn't realise until recent viewing who that who that was and what he's from. It's the, uh, the the kid off Big. Kid from Big, yeah, his friend. I didn't realise yeah. that. And for the the movie buffs out there, I think he pops up in uh, Pet Cemetery too. The second one. <laughs> Um, so the kids are shrunk the four of them now are, are, are shrunken down in, in the attic and uh, not long after Wayne returns to a, to a seemingly empty house and, and of course the double whammy is he blames the machine for his misfortune and at this point he takes the baseball bat and, and, and he breaks it well not into pieces but he does a number on it doesn't he he does yeah he smashes a load of bits and pieces off uh, well fuses and transistors and things like that and then of course he realizes that uh that he needs to to tidy things up after himself so he grabs a dustpan and brush and then that's it's, when it's he a, starts. Uh, it is and i think it's such a good scene maybe i'll maybe mention this one at the end is, is my favorite scene because it's just that the set itself you know when you first see them shrunken down i think the first visual you have is the floorboards and maybe like the odd nail and then you see a bit of a bug and then, of course, we have uh, Wayne coming home and, as I say, using the, the brush and he sweeps the floor. It's so good, so clever, and it kind of really, you know, builds that sense of danger with the kids because, you know, they can't, Wayne can't hear them, he can't see them. I mean, they were lucky not to be stepped on right at the off because I think he walks and I think he stops, doesn't he? Pretty much about a foot in front of them. But he brushes them up, he, he puts them onto the shovel and they end up in a trash bag. Or, or a bin bag, as we'd say, on this side of the Atlantic. Uh, and, of course, that's when they end up, unfortunately, at the other end of the, the garden. Maybe only 15 feet away, but if you are an inch tall or whatever you are, it's, it's practically the Amazon. <laughs> yeah, I think Zelinsky says it's about 10 miles in there, by their reckoning. But you write about the sets, the the initial visual of the, the wooden floorboards and the nails is so convincing. They must have put an awful lot of effort into actually building that and, and making it look real because all of the sets are very uh, immersive. You know, you don't think when you're watching them for one minute, well, I didn't anyway, they feel unreal, that they, they feel fake or phony. You know, and these sets as well are sort of burned in my mind. The floorboards, the grass... The bowl of Cheerios goes without saying. These are so uh, ingrained in in when I think of that film. So they obviously did a real good job on them. They do, uh, and we'll we'll touch upon it as we as we go through the story. And I think one of the, the, the first scenes that come to mind when you think about the effects is you know the, the bee and things like that and the pollen. Um, but as I say, we, we'll get into them as we go go along. Um, but the first attempt to kind of get themselves out of danger um, is to try and attract the attention of the pet dog, Quark. They start whistling, don't they? Uh, and it seems to work because uh, Quark does hear them. I don't know if a dog could hear a, a whistle of someone who's an inch tall. I'm not quite sure how that works. But of course, unfortunately for the, for the kids, uh, Russ and Ron's cat chases Quark back into the house. And I think this cat proves to be a bit of an a-hole throughout this film, doesn't he? Or she. Cats always get a bad rap in films. It's always the dogs <laughs> that are the goodies, aren't they? Of course, quite the, the un, unsung hero, really. I mean, you know, he does save the day on a number of occasions. He does, yeah. And I think we'll, we'll mention that towards the end because he has a big part to play in, in the resolution of the film, doesn't he? But as I say, the Stark situation gets even starker 
when Nick falls into a flower not long after. And of course, he gets covered by pollen. Um, and you can already guess when that happens, you know, what's going to come next. Yeah, we see the, the insects descend upon the, the flowers. And then we get taken on a wild ride on the back of a, a bumblebee, which again comes down to the, the exciting set pieces of this film. First one we've seen with the, with the brush, brushing them up, going into the bag, all that sort of stuff. Now we've seen the, the pollen and the bees flying around. And as we progress through the, the, the film, the dangers become more and more. So in a way, it reminds us, it reminds me of a, a video game in the, the levels and, and how you pl- play through the game and progress. You're right about the sets being immersive. And, and this is another scene in the film when it's like a, a point of view when you're on this back of this bee. And that's at the point, isn't it, where we see Wayne in the back garden. And I think he tries to use the baseball bat. Uh, the next door neighbour, I think, has like a rolled up paper or something like that. And they're trying to swap this bee. But it's an important point, really, because it's the first time Wayne Zielinski kind of knows something's not right because he looks at this baseball bat and and I think he says the line, that's funny, Nick doesn't play baseball. And it's it's the first clue that he's onto something. So he's onto something there, but the bigger thing, what worries me, is his sofa thinking couch goes missing. And he just comments on it and says... Thinking couch has gone missing. Okay, well, well, where is it then? You know, you're not going you're not to look into this. Would you not put two and two together, maybe, and, and think? <laughs> yeah, he, he mentions it to his wife Diane as, as if it were like, yeah, the shoelaces undone. It's like, well, <laughs> one of those things. But of course, he does find the uh, chair and the couch when he goes back into the attic, and it's at this point uh, he has the revelation that the shrinking gun. I'm going to call it the shrinking gun. I can't keep trying to think of what the name's called, but it's confirmation that the machine works. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's. I think he's excited at first that it does work, but of course, then the realization that it's worked on on the kids starts to slowly dawn. It really does, um, and of course, that's the point when Wayne decides to. I think he traces his footsteps, doesn't he? He, he realizes that the window smashed. He remembers brushing up and putting the kids in the bin bag. I mean, he works out quite well, to be fair. So I think at that point, he decides to use crutches to uh, look through the garden. In fact, he probably puts them in more danger looking for the kids than he did prior to. He's on crutches, the sprinklers, warm up, you name it. He, he, he must have been on that garden more in that 24 hours than he probably had been in the last two, what, what years he'd been in the house. <laughs> I think um, maybe if he's if he had this this invention for to be able to shrink something to, or anything, surely he'd, he'd be able to find a, a thermal gun, you know those heat gun things, you know. So you see it like like the Predator Vision type thing, problem solved. There you go. There they are. There. <laughs> there you go. Movie hole near that piece of Lego. <laughs> Another scene that happens in and around this point in the film is that the sprinklers are activated because I think he inadvertently turns the hose or the tap on. Um, and very much like the scene with the, the bees, it's not just the visuals in this film, but the use of sound is excellent. The insect sound is so loud and pulsating, and the sound of these raindrops or the sprinkler drops hitting this garden, it's fantastic. Yeah, again, talk about abiding memories of this film. 
the noise that they make, it's like a, I'm going to have to do it for the purposes of listeners. It's like a, actually the nice. Uh, not long after that, the kids find a cream filled cookie. I mean, I was laughing because it, how long has that cookie been there? I mean, this is a garden where the lawn hasn't been touched in God knows how long. And here's this random cookie. It's, I think it's a cookie. Is it an Oreo? A cookie? I'm not sure. It's called a cream pie. Ah, you've looked into this. No, it's written on the side of the <laughs> What website was that? I'll Google that one after the show. No, don't. Uh, it's, it's written on the side of the packet. <laughs> no, noted. But of course, they have competition for this cream pie uh, in the form of an ant. Um, did they name this ant in the end? They do. They come up with the imaginative name, Auntie. Ah, uh, okay. The, right. the hero well. And the, the character who I felt deep sadness for and sorrow, even on the most recent viewing, a tear came to my eye. <laughs> but they form a bit of a bond, don't they, with this uh, ant, because they find out that this ant actually could get them places. That it can move pretty quick, albeit, I was going to say due to its size, it, it's absolutely ginormous to them, but in the sense of getting from point A to point B in a garden, it could probably do the trick. But we also have uh, Wayne breaking the news, finally, to Diane. And of course, the this also kind of touches upon what we said earlier. More clues that there's some marital problems. But she faints, of course, when, when he finally reveals that he shrunk the kids. I think she does that in a couple of the sequels, doesn't she, as well? Uh, interestingly enough, this was the point in the film. Uh, uh, my understanding is that the film never had a title when it was being filmed. I think there was a few one title, rumoured titles being thrown around. And the producers or, you know, the executives, I'm not quite sure, just watched it back and decided that this line just felt like a natural title, hence why it ended up being called Honey, I've Drunk the Kids. Now, I know when there's no possible way of seeing an alternative universe where the other title would have been used and we only know what it is and accept the way it is and what it is because that's the only thing we've ever known. But this film, much like Back to the Future, just seems like one of those where all of the other possible options just seems so daft or so ridiculous and don't quite fit the film. So anything other than Honey, I Shrunk the Kids just doesn't seem right. But then maybe that's because we know it as that and have only ever known it as that and that's all it's ever been known as. You know, uh, it's not like the the moment in Last Action Hero when the boy's in the, the, the blockbusters with Arnie and he sees Stallone sat on the motorbike for Terminator 2. <laughs> <laughs> Like I say, there's like, <laughs> there's some titles that you just couldn't imagine being called anything else. It's like that time we went into the cinema and we asked for two tickets to see fried green tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe. <laughs> 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 what else would you call <laughs> But anyway, following the revelation that uh, Wayne has shrunk the kids, uh, the two Zelinsky parents take it upon themselves to hover over the garden. Um, and as I say, it, it, they probably cause more hazard to the kids than, than anything. Um, but if they end up having to break the news to the Thompsons. And as you can imagine, it, it doesn't go down well. No, the, the, the dad's reaction is classic. He's so angry 
so frustrated about it. But at the same time, he can't quite believe that, that this is what's happened. And I think, does he say something to Wayne, like, if you killed my kids, I'm going to kill you, or, or something like that? And he says, oh, no. He shows, his, he shows his aggression. Yeah. If I would have stood on them, there would have been body parts squashed all over the place. <laughs> Which is, was, do you know what? That caught me off guard with it being a Disney film. Yeah. Well, it's not, it's not very reassuring, is it? And then he says to him a clever line, like, when I'm done, uh, you know, but you're going to need a shrink. Or, and there'll be body, your body parts squashed all over the place. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, back in the garden, um, the blossoming romance between Amy and Russ Jr. continues. I think she falls, doesn't she? Into a bit like a, I don't know what it is. She falls into it like a mud pool, or is it the dogs? When, we no, it's when um, it's when the water's been flying everywhere, mixed with the mud. But I just remember it always being like this sort of brown, gooey, more like goo, wasn't it, from Ghostbusters rather than mud? It was, yeah. But she, um, but when I, she coughs it up, always stuck in my mind. You just see her coughing this horrible mixture up. Oh. <laughs> but he saves her life, doesn't he? Russ Jr. gives a, a you know, a CPR mouth to mouth. And, and I think that kind of turns Amy's head that, you know, this, this, Guy not only likes it, but you know we'll do things for her. He'll, he saved her life ultimately, and of course that she shows him how to whistle. That's right, and of course it culminates in uh, the kiss at the uh, Lego Hotel. If you like, is that something to do with? Um, how did you learn how to do CPR? And he says French classes, something like that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> We also see um, uh, another hazard in the form of a, of a... Is that a scorpion that shows up in the garden? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I presume it's filmed in or set in California or somewhere like that. I don't know whether they have scorpions roaming around. Maybe one of our listeners could tell us. But, yeah, I mean, it just seems to be a, quite a wild animal, doesn't it, to be in the back garden of somewhere? You'd expect it to be out in the desert or underneath a boulder somewhere, not necessarily amongst the, amongst the washing. Yeah, it caught me off guard. But they are ultimately saved by Auntie, who unfortunately for everyone uh, it perishes in his attempts to um, save the kids. For such albeit, a, succe- uh, albeit yeah. successfully. Yeah, well, for, for such an ugly-looking creature, they don't half-humanise Auntie quite well. You know, especially when Auntie's getting squashed by the scorpion. It gets gets a punk... Oh, it always gets me that. You can shed the tear. Go on, we'll yeah, let you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Auntie dies there in their arms. Uh, Russ, he says something like, not Russ, the other lad, Ronnie's like, uh, you know, he's our friend. You're going to be all right, buddy. (laughs) Such an anti-climax. Oh, my Uh, goodness. What? (laughs) I've got to have a comeback to that. (laughs) Come on now, bring your eyes back to the centre, Pete, and uh, let's crack on. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we also have this uh, the, the kid that shows up to mow the lawn uh, with the remote control I think he pops up earlier in the film doesn't he he's trying I can't remember how, how it goes but he's trying to get something off Nick or Nick's trying to say would you do this for X, Y or Z and I think he says he can't do it now but he's going to do it later and, and the thrill of course is being able to do it via remote control which would be fun if you were 8, 9 years old yeah, Nick says something to him like, you get to be part of my experiment, so therefore you get to mow the lawn. 
And he's like, oh, I'm not doing that. And then when he lifts the cloth up, underneath there's this weird invention, sort of like a Frankenstein's monster of a, of a lawnmower. And then he gets excited about it. That little introductory scene is just all just to set up, isn't it, for later on? And that really, uh, the, the, the friend has got headphones on when he's playing around with it and he's enjoying himself cutting up the lawn, which sets up another one of our set pieces, which is the sucked into a lawnmower scene. That's right. Uh, just just a quick word on, on the kids, now that we've just been mentioning Nick. Maybe, again, it's one of these things that you don't pick up on when you when you're your kid yourself watching it because you're too busy enjoying the film. But I was really impressed with all four of the child actors in this. They all acted really well. And, and I think what really impressed me was when there was any element of danger, they really sold it. There were some scenes when the, the screams were almost blood curdling. It was so good. And in fact, I think I'd almost say Nick was the most convincing out of all of them. He was such a believable kid. Yeah, so it's hard to disagree with that 100%. The great, great acting, very convincing from all of them. And you're right with the screams, it is blood curdling at some point. This is a film that's a comedy and family, but with an awful lot of horror as well in it too. And creepy crawlies are plenty. Salvation comes, doesn't it, in the form of Quark, uh, who who comes over. And how does he? How did he get a, the attention of Quark again? Is it is it just fluke? Is it just by chance that he he comes over and they grab onto his fur? Did they start whistling? I think that well, they've just had the um, close shave with the the lawnmower, uh, and they've been spat out. Which I think luckily, luckily for them brings them almost to the the foot of the porch. Oh, right. um, so probably that's alerted uh, the, the pets, the pooch. But of course, that is their salvation. They grab onto Quark and they're finally uh, back in the house. Uh, but unfortunately for Nick, he doesn't just end up in the house. He ends up on a spoon in his dad's breakfast cereal. Cheerios, is he eating? It is, and it put me off over having them. <laughs> I think when we were youngsters, they weren't necessarily around as well until we were a little bit older. It's very much more of an American thing. But yeah, I mean, that, that scene where he's inside that Cheerio, goodness me. I can, still remember, I can still remember looking at my spoon of Cheerios, thinking about that film when I was a kid. Such was the, you know, the imagery of that scene. The, the imagery of the, but also, you know, the horror of it, the idea that the dad could eat his own child. Isn't, isn't that really scary? <laughs> When he <laughs> when he's on the on he's about to put him in his mouth, yeah. No, but of course, then Quark then comes to save the day. What does he do? Uh, he bites uh, Wayne's trousers. Does he grab his trouser or something? He bites or barks. He runs over and grabs his sock, which causes Wayne to look down. And then, as he's looking down, he spots Nick in the in the cereal. Oh, brilliant! So Quark. As I say, the hero of the film. Yeah, at which point Wayne collapses into a nervous wreck at the very prospect that he's just nearly eaten his own, <laughs> devoured his own child like a, like some sort of a Greek Greek god. <laughs> they are reasonably calm. They? I think he just pulls off the magnifying glass, doesn't he? In fact, <laughs> yeah. he's more thrilled than anything. I think he's happy to see that his machine worked on his kids. Oh, yeah, more than um, then they get the wife over and she says, oh, hi, hi, honey. <laughs> <laughs> Following that, we obviously have uh, the uh, the parents from next door, the Thompsons, come over 
and that, that's when the conversation turns to, you know, how can we reverse the process? And I think they do a test run on Russ Senior. Is that an important moment in the film? Is that giving us some sort of sub kind of message around, I was a, an a-hole to my kids and now I'm going to put my life on the line to, to, to save them? Yeah, I mean, because he's been a... There's, he's, there's a bit of... There's some sympathy for him. You know, the scene when he spits out the, the cigarette, for example, tells me that he's uh, he's a bit put upon or he puts a lot of pressure on himself to be a certain way. But he also puts a lot of pressure on his own kids as well. When he actually stands up and says, I'll do it, you know, that's almost like a redemption for him because there's every possibility that this could kill him. Uh, and then his wife's like, oh, you're so brave. Give him a smooch. <laughs> It, it, I think it's almost a redemption for, for the both fathers because in a way it's like this whole episode has reconnected them all as a family. In, in fact, even the neighbours are a bit closer from it all, aren't they? It does, yeah, and we get the very corny Thanksgiving ending, don't we, with the, 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 the huge turkey. And, <laughs> yeah, it's all very much like, you know, the playing footsie under the table and everywhere, everything's, everything's good, everything's, everything's happy. Uh, funny enough as well actually sets it up for a sequel which I didn't realise with the turkey you know because if you if you hadn't seen the second one and you'd only seen the first one you're thinking how did the turkey get to be so huge so that, that, that's a nice setup for this for a sequel but I, do you know what I'm when you're mentioning this turkey I'm absolutely bewildered because I must have seen a different version of the film or I completely missed it because the version I've seen was not a turkey that had been enlarged, but a dog's treat. Underneath the table, the dog's got a treat, a massive one. Right. Yeah. So as the as the camera pans down from the table, we see the dog with a huge treat, scoffing away at it, and then we get this sort of um, like a Looney Tunes thing, you know, where it's like a circle, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, that type of thing, and then it comes back out again. And I won't say any further because that's one of my questions for you later. No problem. But uh, let, let's move on anyway. Did you know? Okay, Jeff Dog, uh, did you know that the movie earned an award for Paul Grammer? The title, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, is actually not a grammatically correct title. It actually should have been Shrank. <laughs> um, and the Society for the Preservation of English Language and Literature uh, which is, I think, the acronym is SPELL, uh, awarded the film its Dunce Cap Award for 1989. Um, now, a Disney executive, I think, fired back at this, saying that it, you know, it was deliberate because obviously it was meant to be like the goofball saying. And, that, you know, and if I'm honest, if you were in the situation that Wayne was, what would you say? Would you say, honey, I shrank the kids? I actually think you'd probably say shrunk, potentially. There's a, there's a difference between what you'd say in the moment and what you'd actually write down. So if you're going to, if you're going to say something, you know, you might, depending on where you're from, like course, you might drop the G off the end of the word as you're saying, saying it, as opposed to saying it, because that just doesn't come naturally. If you were in the heat of the moment and your children had been uh, shrank, <laughs> you're probably just going to say the first thing that comes to your mind, aren't you? you're not necessarily going to be thinking, hmm, is this the past participle or present participle of the of the word? So, yeah, yeah I mean, where, where would shrank 
uh, shrunk word then. Uh, I have. Is it is it a word? Is it actually a word? Oh yeah, it's definitely a word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shrunk is definitely a word. But you might use it in. You, you might use it. You might say, "My clothes have shrunk." My children have shrunk. Okay, that it's so it's the context of, in which you present the word, as always. But you know, this didn't obviously affect cinema goers because the film went on to be a rip roaring success. Although, having said that, leading on nicely to my second, uh, did you know bit of trivia? The film's success was partly put down to another film because it was actually released at the same time as Tim Burton's 1989 mega-hit Batman, uh, which was so popular that uh, moviegoers who turned up and queued in their droves, many of whom couldn't get a ticket, ended up going to see Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Um, now, I'm not actually entirely sure how they've been able to kind of evidence that. Maybe it's just a hearsay or whatnot, but that, that seems to be something that's floated online. Uh, and, and it wouldn't be surprising, I imagine... In 1989, the queues for Batman would have been pretty wild. Yeah, it was a it was a mega blockbuster, wasn't it? Not only that, it was. Um, <clears throat> I'm not sure what happened in the states, but in this country, there was there was a um, a rating which was 15, still exists now, and there was PG. There was nothing really to bridge the gap. Batman was actually the first film awards at a 12 rating by the the BBFC, which is the British equivalent of the, the MPAA, which rates the movies. I think in the difference in the States and here, though, is, uh, it's more advisory in the States as opposed to a legality. So, for example, mo most films which would get 15 or 18 in this country are rated R, and that means that I think it's 17. If you're under 17, you can go in with an adult so it's a very much more discretion rather than a case of you know the law um in this country it's more that you've got to if you look if you're lucky enough to look at a certain age you know then you can get in <laughs> uh but yeah if, if you've got a film like batman point of what i'm saying is you've got a much wider audience that it's available to from adults right through to children so now you've got a massive a wider, a wider number of people who can go and see the film, then yet you are going to have bigger queues. You are going to have um, queues around the block, especially with a big film like that. Tim Burton, sort of with the, the, the cusp of stardom and Michael Keaton and, you know, the whole new take on, on a superhero film, which it had, the Prince soundtrack, the hype that would have been put into it by the film, the, by, I think it was Warner Brothers. They would have put an awful lot of money into hyping that film up. So, yeah, you would have had big queues. So those people probably would have turned around and gone, let's go and see this instead. It's probably contributed to them becoming such a mega hit. I imagine so. The last one from me, J-Dog. Uh, did you know that in the original draft of this movie, there was actually a fifth child? Uh, it doesn't disclose who the fifth child was, i.e. was he, uh, he or she a Zelinsky or a, a Thompson? Uh, but this child was actually supposed to die in the sprinkler scene, uh, Disney obviously overruled the idea. Um, obviously, it seemed somewhat understandable given that it, the target audience. But this was the the original brainchild. I think Stuart Gordon and Brian Yuzna, who who had a bit of a horror background 
I think they've been involved with some of the reanimator movies and things like that. Um, and they both contributed to the story. So yeah, there was a fifth kid in the early draft. Should have perished. Uh, maybe that was why we ended up having the scene with the ant. Uh, maybe it was a compromise. The the ant fulfills the role there as a as a guide, but also as someone who can die and give the the, the children to the chance to show off their their dr- dramatic repertoire, as it were, and also for us to as an audience to feel like we've lost something. I think it would have been a bit too heavy if it was another child. It did make me think, though, for a moment. What if, you know, what if there was a fifth child who at the start of the film appeared on the side of a milk carton? You know, they like that in the States, don't they? As missing. And it turns out that he or she had actually been shrunk, shrunk previously. And it's somehow been living a bit like Jumanji or Castaway. You know, they've gone sort of native and now they're just living in that way and they've adapted to it. And that person could be their their guide through things. You know, I'd imagine them having like a, a blade of grass for a dress or something like that. <laughs> in fact, I'm sure did they mention a kid on the milk carton in this film? Do they? I'm sure. I think it pops up. I think uh, uh, Ron teases Amy over it and says, I hope you end up as, you know, someone, a kid on the side of a milk carton. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Did you know, JD, that the role of Wayne Zielinski was actually first offered to that Marmite of Hollywood, Mr. Chevy Chase? The wonderful Chevy Chase. Well, depends on who you ask that one, doesn't it? But anyway, he declined it because he was actually shooting National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation at the time, which I think was also 1989. It was passed on then to another actor, another famous actor who we've come across in our, in our podcast travels, uh, none other than Mr. John Candy. The wonderful John Candy. The, 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 I, I think we both agree he was wonderful. Now, he was doing Uncle Buck at the time, also 1989. He actually recommended Rick Moranis for the part. And that's it, how it became him. And, you know, it's like when you now, I mean, I love all three, but actually, if you'd have asked me, you know, at the time, who would I have preferred to have played Wayne Zielinski? knowing the script and that, you know, he can kind of has that look of a bit of a mad scientist with his glasses. I probably would have picked him ahead of those two anyway. Yeah, I mean, firstly, there's something sort of smarmy about Chevy Chase, which I don't think would have suited. Uh, And then the other thing is John Candy, you know, all right, the big lovable guy and all that kind of stuff. What would they have played off his weight to maybe have some more like getting stomped? Kind of scenes, you know, do you see what I'm what I mean? I, I do, although I don't think he would have been against that idea himself. Ah, that's true. He pays the bills. Well, did you know that uh, the the neighbour Matt Frewer, Froyer, however you pronounce it, it, might look familiar to viewers, but he actually at the time as well he was playing a role on television called Max Headroom in Back to the Future Two when they go to the cafe eighties and there's these talking head things on the screen. Like a like a rubber Michael Jackson and Ronald Reagan and stuff like that. That's based on that Max Headroom character. So he kind of had this rubber head, uh, wore sunglasses, and he used to pause when he was talking in the video. So we'd be like, "Oh, now we're going to play the next song," you know, that kind of thing. It was meant to be as if he was this CGI character 
but obviously it wasn't. It was just this guy with a, a ton of makeup on. And I think he introduced music videos. And he did have a show, actually, in the UK. I think it was on Channel 4. Uh, whenever you see these um, television programmes about the 80s or television in the 80s, Max Headroom often often pops up. So this guy, Max Headroom, are we saying that he played the father? He was he was the father, yeah, the neighbour. The, the, the neighbor. Ah, right, okay. He did look familiar. I, I couldn't recall what from, but this character that you're saying about with the you know meant to look like cgi did he have a, am i imagining it did he look like a bit like johnny bravo he had that look about yeah, yeah he blonde okay. hair and a suit and sunglasses and big shiny teeth well, i never knew that that's a good bit of trivia yeah i think he's played a number of um roles where it's been like acting like um a puppetry or a voice i think he might be a a, a computer game voice actor um possibly you might have to check that one out. But anyway, uh, we've talked about the Cheerio scene. Uh, in reality, Nick was not swimming around in, in cow's milk, funny enough. Um, he was actually swimming in a mixture of chlorinated water, food thickener, and food pigment, which um. I, I guess would be more practical because, well, firstly, the milk, you know, you're going to need a ton of milk. Secondly, it's going to stink. Thirdly, under the studio lights, it's going to curdle. And a scene like that's going to take weeks to film, days, weeks. So it makes much more sense. But it looks realistic, looks effective. And, and, the, and the Cheerio. Right, now the Cheerio itself is actually um, a the inner tube of a tractor tyre. Wow. And then they covered it with foam and painted it. Well, they did a bloody good job because it's a very convincing serial. It is. It's it, yeah. It's a um, it's a really effective one because it's got all like if you look at a if you look at a, a cherry up close, it does look like that. It's got little pits in it, little holes. You know, it's not quite perfectly circular. I think that sheep has got a name actually. We'll have to think of it. Yeah, oh, I did know it. Like a donut shape, anyway. It's got an actual name, an actual mathematical name. I'll find out. E either way, another... Oh, I've got it. A Taurus. Ah. Nice. You can, you can snip that one so it doesn't sound like you were waiting so long. <laughs> Let's move on. Usual process, Jeff Dog. Three questions from me, three questions from you. Question one. The name of the Selinsky dog was Quark. But do you actually know what a Quark is? Is it a, a, a subatomic particle? I'm going to give you that. Something that's, uh, something, that's, something that's smaller than a proton, a neutron, an electron, and a certain part of your anatomy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know me so well. <laughs> It's, well, it's I was an talking, element. I was talking about your nose or your ears. Oh, sorry, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's an elementary particle with an electric charge. So I'm, I'm giving you the points on that one. Um, question two: What was the name of the Thompson's pet cat? Oof. Is it? I think Ron, Ron shouts it a few times. At what point in the film is it? Given the name. Uh, 
I can't remember exactly when, but I think when uh, Quark's about to come out and rescue them, and the cat intervenes, I think Ron says something, like he shouts it. Oh, I, I don't know. I'm sorry. Spike. Oh. And uh, question three. What excuse does Russ Senior tell Don Forrester to get out of going along for the fishing trip? <laughs> All right. Talk about things from the 80s sometime. <laughs> I, I knew you were going to pick up on this. And I, I, I was, was going to mention it in the movie review, but I've, I've mentioned it in the quiz. I, 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 we can have a little chat about it, but what was the answer anyway? Uh, pi- pipe works. I think he says plumbing. Plum, plum. Uh, so. And he's I'll, I'll give you that. About, he's not talking about the house. Uh, two out of three on that one. But quick word on that. He, he mentions that you know the wife. It's a very dated view of of of, of a, a woman's issue in the eighties. Yeah, very or, or, or is it is it actually appropriate for the time? Well, for the time, I mean, you know, it's easy to judge, isn't it? But it seems very, you know, he's this macho guy, a little bit misogynistic, maybe. You know, the wife is the kind of like stays out the picture, just looks after the kids, that type of thing. And then when the other guy comes around, his friend, he seems very much like the the, the same as him. You know, he shouts down the wife. I don't know if you noticed that. You know, the guy kind of like, be quiet, go, you know, go away kind of thing. And uh, yeah, just a, a product of the time, I guess. Yeah, well, well done. You got two out of three on that one. Great. Okay. When the neighbour is talking about Wayne, his wife says, give him a break. What does he say in response to that? Uh, Something about breaking his arm. (laughs) I'll give him a break. I'll break his arm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'll give you that one. Of course you will. That was the right answer. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, when, when, uh, when Wayne first operates the machine... He's talking to a uh, core and he says, if this thing works, it will put us up there with, and he mentions three things. Can you name one of the three things? Uh, first dog in space. Yes. <laughs> and the other, I think he says, I think he says man in space and then he yeah. looks at core and says, sorry, dog. That's it. Yeah. Okay. You got two of those. The other one was, uh, the, the, the I think he says the invention of electricity, which uh-huh. um, which he should know, is not is not actually scientifically correct, because you know electricity wasn't necessarily invented, it was always there. We've always had natural th- phenomena such as thunderstorms and lightning. Man's ability to harness it, he should have said. <laughs> you picked another hole in the movie. Yeah? <laughs> okay, and uh, I did have a couple more, but I'll just give you a last one out of these. The, the the boy with the earphones on who plays with the remote control lawnmower, when he pulls the antenna out, it's got a number on a flag, on a yellow flag. Do you know what number it is? Uh, I thought you were going to ask me what the name of the mower was because I was thinking about that. I knew that it was a snapper, by the way. Um, but the number on the flag, I have no idea. I'm just going to hazard a guess at. Does does it have any resonance whatsoever, or is it random? Doesn't seem to have any consequence. Uh, five. One off. It was four. Ah oh, well. Okay. Well, two out of three ain't bad. 
Happy days. Listener feedback. Okay, J Dog, we only had one come in for this week on Honey Action with the Kids, but it's quite a good one. So let me read it out to you. This one came in from Angela D. Hinton at Angela underscore Hinton, who said, I love this film. Although made in the 80s, the special effects don't detract from the film. The story holds up how Russ cared so much for Amy that he seized the opportunity to talk to her when his brother smashed the window. I loved how everybody's talents were used. Ron's survival skills protected the camp from intruders. Russ became the knight in shining armor and leader, protecting the others. Amy's nurturing with the ant. Nick's knowledge of science helped them find shelter from the lawnmower. All in all, one of my favorite films. I thought that was really good and really nice and clever tweet. And it's stuff that we never even thought of, but it's true. And I think it goes back to what we were saying before about they were such good characters. They all were an archetype, if you like, and, you know, the, the scientist, the nerd. And, you know, the, the, I wouldn't say, you know, Amy was the, you couldn't call her the socialite, but you could see she was natured and caring. And as uh, Angela pointed out in, in her tweet, it all came to fruition and helped them on this journey. Yeah, thanks, Angela. That was very succinctly put. Thank you. Go on, J-Dog, what have you got? Oh, there's so many to pick from. You know, there's net pieces uh, throughout the film are just all so exciting and so enjoyable. The one that really stood out for me was the, the battle between the scorpion and the ant. Or anti, should I say? Because firstly, as well, I've mentioned about the emotional attachment that I feel to this insect. <laughs> but the actual battle itself is set up very much like, and I'm sure Joe Johnston, the director, was a fan. It's almost like a Godzilla versus Mothra type thing, you know, one of these uh, big battle type things. And also, technically, it must have been really difficult because I think it was a combination of live action with with a dozen people. Uh, moving the bits and pieces and stop motion as well you know stop motion has the ability or can have the ability to look quite poor really uh, and this film was in 89 which was just on that cusp of uh, CGI starting to be used in, in films The Abyss might have been 1989 Terminator 2 Judgment Day 1991 to do what they did without the, without the CGI effects was very clever uh, Back to the Future 2 as well, of course, uh, 1989. So you're looking at a film that's sort of at the tail end of uh, special effects in the practical, traditional style as we move towards the, the future, as it were, in the 90s. And I think what they did with it was done really, really well. And it stands the test of time in that, you know, all right, it looks a little bit cheesy from now on. But that particular scene has got so many shots that are so scary when... It zooms into the mouth of the scorpion or the mouth of Antti and, you know, the noises, the sound effects, the, the music, James Horner's score, don't forget as well, you know, uh, combined with it. It just makes it all the more special. So I really like that, that scene. You know, that's a great shout. Uh, and I know exactly what you're saying about that, that stop motion. It almost had the, the feel of like a, the Clash of the Titans or Jason and the Argonauts kind of thing. Um, I can't remember the guy who did that. Now, Harry... Ray, Ray uh, Harryhausen. Ray Harryhausen, there we go. Uh, we, Jason the Argonauts, one of my favourite films, and that broke the mould, didn't it, really? But, uh, no, I love that scene. Um, I'd probably go for the the first scene when, when they shrunk down, shrank down, um, and Wayne comes back and he, he's got the sweeping brush because 
point in the film when everything just kind of it catapults. Uh, we go from not mile an hour to 100 just in this one scene. And of course, we have the, the special effects, the sets. It was just so well done. Yeah, I'll go with that one. Movie Legacy. So it's um, 2021 at the time of recording. Uh, we had two theatrical films in this franchise. And we also had one uh, direct-to-video sequel. So three films in, in, in total. We had a, a TV series. We had a, a 3D theme park attraction. And we also have a planned sequel in the works. I think uh, there's talk of Josh Gad kind of taking the helm with a potential cameo or, or uh, a part for Rick Moranis. But it's certainly a, a product that has legs and, and it seems to have a lot of life in it. Simply on the basis of the story, forget the cast, it's a sellable idea, isn't it? I think the idea and the potential for further and mileage is there. In a way, I can't help but get the feeling it's a wasted franchise like Ghostbusters. You had the first film, which had which was a good a great film. He's setting it up for the second one. The second one comes along. There's just something about it that's off. Can't quite describe it. It's an odd film. It's a weird film. It's not quite what it should be. It's trying to do what the first film did but not doing it as well. And they're really just way off the mark. And perhaps the film was made a little bit too early. And so I see a lot of parallels there between Honey, I Blew Up the Kid and Ghostbusters 2 in that way. And then anything else that's followed off subsequently too. So there was that god-awful one in 1997. Straight to video. I remember it well. Honey, We Strunk Ourselves. Now that was one of the most abysmal films I've ever seen. <laughs> can't even call it a film, it was a disgrace and then now the potential for this new Disney Plus remake now from the latest I've heard on that one in recent months is he said it, it nothing's being filmed yeah, but by the sounds of it, it was very much it was very much in line to get, uh, to start filming last year before all of this, talks of Joe Johnston coming back to be involved as director, God knows how old he must be now and Rick Moranis retaining as well after his um, sort of hiatus, because I think it was just after Honey, We Shrunk Ourselves, that unfortunately Rick Moranis' wife was very unwell and they had young kids and he sort of retired from the, the movie industry to look after them. It's one of these stories where you think, whatever happened to that person, you know, fair play, he went to do, he went to do the right thing, what he had to do. Uh, be nice to see him return. It will. I mean, if you think about the film, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, 80% of the film takes place just in a back garden. So there's so much uncharted territory, what you could do with little people. You could have them in a city, you could have them in a... So it's endless, isn't it? Yeah, there's so much mileage you could put them in any situation. If you think about another film, sadly it's already been made, but the film Inner Space was the one where they shrank down and went inside someone's body. That was another... I think that might have been before, uh, before this film. I think it may have been. Was that was that Dennis Quaid? Yeah, Dennis I imagine it. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was a little bit earlier, but that was all like, you know, what, what's it like if you see a red blood cell up close and the adventures that you can go on in ordinary tasks, you know, like in this film, ordinary things become deadly 
like uh, being brushed up or, uh, you know, going down a slide or which is a blade of grass or flying on the back of a wasp or whatever, you know, things that you just, you see and don't, well, you don't fly in a, fly in a wasp normally, but you, what I'm saying is you see them flying about, now it becomes like an adventure. The, the one for me, which I really enjoyed, and I think is part of keeping the legacy of this film going, many youngsters would have had the opportunity to go to Disney World in the States or Disneyland or uh, the, the, other, the other places around the world. They had a ride, or would you call it a ride? It was more of a show, more of a 3D show called Honey, we Sh- Honey, I Shrank the Audience, Shrunk the Audience, whatever it was called. And I distinctly remember going on that, you know, show, ride, whatever you want to call it, back in the 90s. That, that ride was, or show, ride, show, whatever you want to call it, was only taken away in 2010. There's a whole generation of kids there, young people who would have seen that. And for many of them, that might have been their first experience before they then go back and watch the film. So I don't think there's an adult now who's not familiar with the phrase or the term or the expression, and certainly not the, the film. You know, most adults I expect would have seen the film. I'm not so sure about the younger generations, but... But it's certainly a franchise that has got legs just on the basis of the idea that you can shrink someone. It's, it's a, you know, a unique story that you can tell. Um, and I think it would always go down well with audiences. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see a sequel to this anytime soon, Rick Moranis or not. Um, but we have reached the point in the episode where you have to give the all-important mark out of 10, and I will leave that to you. Is it a perfect film? Probably not. Is it a great film? Yeah. On its own merits, as a children's film, as a science fiction film, as a special effects film, which still generally holds up, yeah. I'd give it a nine. I would agree with that. I don't think you can mark it down too much because of the very things that you've just listed, the special effects, you know, the sense of adventure, the bits of horror elements and those kinds of things. Good story, well acted. So I think uh, a nine is, is a more than worthy score. Uh, Jeff Dog, any final words before we go? Just to say thank you to all of our listeners and for your comments. Angela, thank you very much for your remarks. Lovely to hear them about this film. And I look forward to the next episode. Great stuff. Uh, remember, uh, guys, if you want to check us out on social media, we are on Twitter at Circuit of Time, and we're also on Instagram, Circuit of Time 80. And that wraps up another episode of the Circuit of Time. Hope you've enjoyed this episode, and we'll see you next time. See you next time, nerds. <laughs>